Fans First Sportsnet listeners, welcome to the call sheet. My name is Kevin Smith. You can follow me on Twitter at KTSmithFFSN. And this is the maiden voyage of one of the flagship programs on the NFL feed here at Fans First Sports Network. Uh, the show is called The Call Sheet, and uh, it's going to be a, an NFL show about two things, really. Part one, each week we're going to explore what we're going to call a first and 10 segment. And in that in that segment, we're going to look at current NFL news and analysis with a, an emphasis on stories underneath the headlines. We're going to try to, to get into some of the things that you might not hear on other sports programs in terms of why teams did a certain thing, why they signed a certain player, what they might be doing with their salary cap money. Uh, and and a, an analysis of, of the NFL really from a fan's perspective with some insight as to how it works, how the league works. And then part two will be what we're going to call a coach's corner segment. And in that segment, I'm going to really kind of look at the game for, through a coach's eyes. Um, I've been been blessed to be a part of football or around football my entire life, uh, played it in high school, played it in college, and for the past 28 years have been coaching the game. I'm currently the, the head football coach at a high school in southern New Jersey, Ocean City High School, which is a beautiful little beach town just south of Atlantic City. And we are we have a unique venue at Ocean City High School. Our field, Cary Stadium, is literally just steps from the beach. Uh, so close, in fact, that when Hurricane Sandy pounded the Jersey Shore back in 2012, we had waves rolling into our east end zone. So when you have tidal flooding in the end zone, you are, you are truly a beach town. So what we'll do in that, in that coaches segment is I'm, I'm going to just try to apply some of the things I've learned through 28 years of coaching. And I've had an opportunity to really talk to and meet some wonderful individuals over the years, had an opportunity to coach with and against division one players, current NFL players. And we're going to bring in people from all over the football spectrum to talk about the game in the second part of our show. So I'm hoping that uh, that this will wind up being a, a show that it helps fans appreciate the game a little bit more, and that at the end of the show, if you've learned a little something or you're, or you're taking something with you that helps you love football a little more than when the show started, then then this will be a success. So, so I hope you'll join in every week here on the call sheet as we as we roll into our first episode. So without further ado, let's get going. Right. So let's start with our, our first and ten segment. And in the first and 10 segment this week, we're going to look at the first wave of free agency, which has come to an end. And we're now in, in a bit of a lull. That first wave, which went from mid-March to about the end of the month, saw a flurry of signing. Some of the best players uh, on the free agent market have obviously gone off. And now teams are really readying for the draft. You're seeing teams shift into draft preparation. And, and when the draft is over, end of April, early May, you'll probably see a bit of a second wave of free agency with, with some, some more good players come off the board. So let's look at, let's look at the first wave and we're going to do three things here, right? We're going to look at one signing. I really like, and talk about that. We're going to look at one signing. I have questions about, and we're going to look at one team who I believed has really helped itself in free agency. So let's, let's start with, with a signing. I really like, I'm actually going to give you two of them. And I will start with Javon Hargrave leaving the Philadelphia Eagles to go to the San Francisco 49ers. So Javon Hargrave, arguably the best defensive player on the board in free agency, coming off of a monster year in Philly, where he was part of a 
tremendous defensive line for the Eagles. Heads over to the West Coast to play for the team the Eagles faced in the NFC Championship game. And I believe that that NFC Championship game had a lot to do with the Hargrave signing and San Francisco's pursuit of him. If you watch the NFC Championship game, one thing that jumped out, and surprisingly so, considering how good San Francisco's defense was, was the way in which Philadelphia's offensive line manhandled the 49ers up front. It was a mismatch up front in the trenches. The Eagles were able to, through their their zone run scheme, get double teams on San Francisco's interior players, their one and three tech tackles, and just push them to the second level. Uh, San Francisco's linebackers, Fred Warner in particular, could not find space to run to the ball because they constantly had a defensive tackle being deposited in their lap. And so San Francisco must have looked at that film and thought to themselves, how do we solidify the interior of our, of our run defense? And they went out and they got the best defensive player, arguably in free agency in Javon Hargrave. Now they paid him a lot. They paid him a lot. And some, some people might look at the Hargrave signing and say, they gave him 84 million over four years. That's, that's an average of 21 million a year for a guy who's 30 years old. Maybe, maybe turning the corner a little bit onto the back end of his career. But remember, Hargrave is coming off his best season as a pro. And in San Francisco, to pair him uh, up front with Eric Armstead uh, and to give Joey Bosa some more freedom, where Hargrave and Armstead now absorb some double teams and let Bosa operate one-on-one, and to keep the linebackers clean in San Francisco, that defense is built on speed and an ability to get to the football from the second and third level. Uh, to do all those things, it's a, certainly a worthwhile investment. So the 49ers, who are clearly still, even though their quarterback situation is a little bit hazy with uh, Brock Purdy and Trey Lance still recovering from surgeries and injuries, uh, even though they still got a little bit of a murky quarterback situation, they are good enough under the Kyle Shanahan system and with now a really good defense to remain a major contender for the Super Bowl next year. So applause. I, I, I uh, take my hat off, I, I should say, and, and applaud that signing. I'm going to give you another one real quick before I move on. And it pains me, got to say, it pains me as a lifelong Pittsburgh Steeler fan to do what I'm about to do. But I'm about to give props to the Cincinnati Bengals for signing Orlando Brown. That was a steal, an absolute steal to get Orlando Brown. And if there's any Bengals out here listening right now, you know how painful it is for a Steeler fan to give props to the Bengals. Because now picture yourself in this situation on the other end, a, a Bengal fan having to having to give it up to the Steelers. But but you got to be honest, right? It's a great signing. It's a great signing for them at a relatively cheap price tag. Four years, $64 million, an average of about $16 million for, per, per season. Just for some perspective, right? Laramie Tunsil of the Texans signed for $25 million a season, $75 million over three years. Um, Jawan Taylor, the, the tackle that, that Kansas city brought in to replace Orlando Brown, Brown leaving the chiefs to go to Cincinnati, the chiefs wind up giving Jawan Taylor 20 million a year to come over from Jacksonville. Brown is arguably the better player. Mike McGlinchey, who we'll talk about in a minute, got an average of over 17 million a year, more than Brown to leave San Francisco and head to Denver. And so Brown, who is arguably the best, or if not the best, then certainly a top three tackle in the NFL is the fourth highest paid offensive lineman out of this free agent class. So so for Cincinnati, that's a great deal to solidify their offensive line and 
provide Joe Burrow some of the protection he needs. One thing we've learned about the Bengals is this. When Joe Burrow is healthy and upright, they are one of the best teams in the NFL. They're a top five NFL team. He's a top five quarterback. But as we saw his rookie year, when Burrow goes down, they're ordinary. That's the deal when you have a franchise quarterback, right? The franchise quarterback elevates your franchise into playoff or in Cincinnati's situation, championship contention. And few teams, few teams are able to remain as such without one, which side note makes what's, what Kyle Shanahan did in San Francisco last year all the more impressive and why San Francisco, even with their quarterback situation hazy, remains a championship contender. So hats off to the Bengals. Okay, let's get to a signing I, I, I didn't love. And it's not because I don't love the player. And the signing is Mike McGlinchey going from San Francisco to Denver and the Broncos giving him $87.5 million, 50 million of which, 50 million of which is guaranteed. And I like Mike McGlinchey as a player. And I really liked him in San Francisco where he was a physical downhill offensive tackle in that outside zone, inside zone, wide zone boot scheme that Shanahan loves so much where he could use his, uh, his good lateral movement and, and his aggressiveness to be a really effective blocker in that scheme. But now he goes to Denver and new head coach, Sean Payton. We understand why he went after McGlinchey. He's going to do everything that he can to protect Russell Wilson. Um, he, you know, he, he built uh, a great career for himself in, in New Orleans, protecting a, another smaller quarterback, Drew Brees. Russell Wilson, like Drew Brees, is not the biggest guy back there. But there's a huge difference between Russell Wilson and Drew Brees. Drew Brees played quarterback from the pocket. Russell Wilson plays it a lot more like, well, for you old school fans, you'll remember this name, Fran Tarkenton, the old scrambler back in the in the 70s for the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, well, I think that's an appropriate term for Wilson. He's a scrambler. And that can make life hard on offensive tackles because if there's one thing that an offensive tackle really wants to know, it's where is the quarterback going to be in the pocket? Because that has a lot to do with the way that they pass set, the way that they attempt to shield defenders. If you're a speed rusher trying to get the edge uh, and you know as an offensive tackle that the quarterback's going to be inside in the pocket, it makes your life a lot easier because you can commit a little harder to running that guy up the field. But when you don't necessarily know where he is, you need to be a really good athlete. And this is where I think the fit with McGlinchey comes into question. How good of an athlete is Mike McGlinchey? He was good as a wide zone run blocker, but he's never been great as a kick step, uh, you know, give ground and retreat traditional pass blocker. Uh, you know, I, I hate to say anything like this, but I'm, I'm going to because I think it's relevant. You can never blame anything that happens on the football field on one guy. But it is true that in San Francisco, Jimmy Garoppolo got injured and had his season ended last year when Mike McGlinchey got beat fairly cleanly uh, in pass protection, leading to a hit on Garoppolo. It is also true that when Brock Purdy hurt himself in the NFC Championship game, that involved a stunt uh, that took place on McGlinchey's side of the line as well. And in both instances, McGlinchey's McGlinchey's issue was the failure to move his feet properly. Now throw in a mobile quarterback who doesn't st sit in the pocket very long and who likes to move around and scramble around and, and is hard at times for his offensive linemen to essentially locate. And you now have a questionable, uh, the, the questionable mobility of McGlinchey now paired with that. It just, 
it just brings me to ask, is that the right, is he the right guy? And you're giving him 50 million guaranteed. So not an issue about Mike McGlinchey, the player, more so an issue about Mike McGlinchey and his fit in a Denver offense with Russell Wilson at quarterback. All right, let's move to the last thing in this first segment of the call sheet. Uh, let's talk about a team I like in terms of what they have done in the first wave of free agency. And that team is the Detroit Lions, who are having a bit of a renaissance. A renaissance, I guess, I don't know, maybe that's the wrong word because a renaissance suggests a return to something great. And I don't know if the Lions have ever been great, but they're but they're escaping, they're escaping being a terrible team. And that is progress for the Lions. Uh, I don't know, maybe it was hard knocks. I don't know what it was, bringing the national exposure back. You know, maybe it was uh it was Dan Campbell's enthusiasm as a head coach. But whatever it is, the Lions are coming off of one of their better seasons in recent memory. They were very good on offense last year. They finished fifth in the NFL in points per game. Uh, They can score. But where they really struggled, of course, was on the other side of the ball. They finished 28th in the NFL in opponents' points per game. And they were dead last in pass defense, specifically in opponents' passing yards per, per, per completion where Detroit gave up almost 12 yards per completion last year. That is not good. So what did what did the Lions do? They went out and they tried to solve their problems, right, by addressing their secondary. They brought in uh, Cam Sutton from the Steelers, a guy I liked a lot, who's a really versatile defensive back. He can play outside. He can play in the slot. Um, he can, he, if you want to play some robber coverage and drop a safety down, he can rotate back and play half the field. So a really versatile guy who was a good player for the Steelers. They brought in Emmanuel Mosley, another another good corner, and they brought in Cam Sutton. I'm sorry, they brought in C.J. Gardner-Johnson from the Philadelphia Eagles, who, uh, living in South Jersey as I do, surrounded by Eagles fans, I know how much those Eagles fans really loved uh, C.J. Gardner-Johnson, and they feel as though he brought toughness and swagger and, and an attitude to the back end of Philly's defense. So what's Detroit do? They solidify their biggest weakness, and now they free themselves up in the draft to maybe go out and address the defensive line, which is not that great in Detroit, or the linebacker position. Or maybe if they want, since trading TJ Hawkinson over to the Vikings at the trade deadline last year, they go out and get a tight end. You got 6'7", Darnell Washington uh, from Georgia, who may be sitting there at number 18 in the first round when Detroit picks, or or maybe the, the consensus best tight end in the draft. Notre Dame's Michael Mayer is still available. So Detroit has given themselves options uh, in the draft. And for that, man, well done. Well done to the Lions. So that'll bring us to the end of the first segment, right? Our first and 10 segment. We're going to wrap that up and we're going to take a little break. When, when we come back on the other side of the break, uh, we're going to talk about the namesake of this program, the call sheet. What is a call sheet? How does a call sheet get put together? We're going to talk about game planning. We're going to talk about play calling. And we're going to do it all with a special guest, my good friend, Paul Callahan, one of the best football minds that I know. We'll talk to Paul about this. Is play calling an art or a science? And what goes into the creation of a call sheet? Come on back after the break. Welcome back to the call sheet. Uh, this is Kevin Smith uh, in our inaugural episode here at Fans First Sports Network. Happy to have everybody with us. 
In the first half of the show, we did some free agency reflections and talked about some of the best uh, signings during the, the first wave of free agency and and uh, one of the teams that we were really impressed with, the Detroit Lions. And in the second half of the show now, we're going to get into the nature of a call sheet. We're going to talk about the namesake of this program, uh, what it is, how you set it up. Uh, and I'm, I'm thrilled to have with me a guest, Paul Callahan, a longtime coach in the great state of New Jersey, 30 plus years of experience at both the college and high school level. Paul uh, has been our offensive coordinator at Ocean City High School for the past seven years where we've had tremendous success, uh, been to three championship games and uh, Paul's offense has set numerous school records and uh, he's a very extremely knowledgeable individual and, and we're thrilled to have with him. Coach Cal, how are you? Great. Thanks a lot for having me, Kev. Great to be here. Absolutely. So, Cal, we're going to talk a little bit about game planning and, and uh, you know, what goes on to a call sheet. A call sheet is really the product of a lot of preparation and hard work. And uh, a game plan sort of ends up on the call sheet. So can you talk a little bit about, about your game plan process? How, how do you ultimately decide what you're going to include on your call sheet and, and what factors play into those decisions? It's interesting because over the years it's evolved, and you know from calling an offense that like your call sheet changes over time. You're always looking to improve it. And over the last really three years or so, we streamlined it after hearing some people like Ryan Day from Ohio State talk about his call sheet, uh, the former offense coordinator at Rutgers. I was at one of his clinics, and the call sheet sort of works backwards, if if it makes any sense. You start the call sheet, and over the last three years, I started early in the week. I started on Sundays. And one of the things I found over the years is I had too many plays on the call sheet. So after listening to Ryan Day speak, and uh, I'm forgetting the uh, old offense coordinator at Rutgers, but it starts with how many number of plays you're going to run during the game. And so I go from there. In a high school game, you're probably going to run somewhere between 40 or 50 plays in a game. So the call sheet would start with somewhere in the neighborhood of like 60, 65 plays, knowing you're going to knock some off during the game. But once I started streamlining the number of plays that we had on the sheet, it started making my life a lot easier. And right. it went from every situation. I broke down over the first five or six years we were together how many of each, each situation is there was in a game. So I'd include that many number of plays on that situation on the call sheet. Right. So when you say situations, a typical call sheet is going to contain things like openers, yep. uh, plays from different parts of the field, for example, yep. coming out uh, it might be a section. And now you're talking about plays from the middle of the field, red zone plays, plays on a hash. Now hashes matter a lot more in high school than they do in the pros because in the pros, the, the hashes aren't really a, a consideration considering how close they are together. But in, in the high school game, the hash is a huge advantage because it's 17 yards through the boundary and, and 37 yards almost to the field. So you can really formation teams and do some creative things when you get the hash. Yeah. So what we've done is just like when I went back over the years and I said, you know, like I would carry too many third and mediums into a game. I'd have like third, five or six third mediums. And, and I found over a five-year span, we only had like two and a half third of mediums a game. And so it enabled you to streamline. You'd carry too many plays in the goal line or red zone area. And then you find out, you know, you only have four goal line plays a game for average. So now you might carry five or six on your sheet. 
And so uh, it really helped eliminating practicing too many plays. Right. And saying you're only going to practice the plays that you were going to run. Right. So, so that, you know, we think about some of these NFL coaches and you look at, for example, Cliff Kingsbury, when he was the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals, uh, his call sheet was about the size of an index card. Yeah. He was, he's an air raid guy and they have a certain way of, of calling a game. And then you look at Andy Reeds and his look looks like the, the midnight menu at Denny's. Uh, <laughs> he's got fold outs and all sorts of things going on there. Um, how do you how do you think that those guys arrive at such a different approach? How 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 can how can Kingsbury fit his entire game on something so small? And how does Reed make sense of something so big? That's a really good question. You think about the air raid guys, and uh, they have a limited number of concepts they're going to run. You know, they're going to run the four or five main pass concepts in the air raid. They're going to run mash. They're going to run wide cross. They're going to run um, four verts. And I remember even hearing a story years ago about Leach when he was at Texas Tech and they beat Oklahoma. And they said in the second half of the game, he ran four verts every single play of the game. So they have a limited menu and they run limited formations. So, you know, you can go on there with a little sheet of paper and say, you know, we're running trips. We're running two by two, maybe some empty. And, you know, we're only going to run four or five concepts. We're going to have some variations off it. But our concepts are su- are such that you can run four verts like uh, Leach did in the whole second half. So you don't need a big play sheet. And they're so experienced in the offense, too, that, you know, like if a situation arises, th- they can, hey, this is the answer. This is what we're going to do off of that, you know, like some kind of variation. I worked with uh, Bill Manlove, who's a college Hall of Famer at Widener, and we had a small call sheet at Widener, but we only ran one or two formations. And his theory was, you know how they're going to line up. There's only so much they're going to do. Now we got like Andy Reid, and we got like this at Ocean City. They run a ton of formations. And so, you know, like if we had inside zone on our call sheet, right, we might have – we generally we ran inside zone like 11 times a game over a seven, eight-year eight period, right? So we might carry 12 or 13 inside zones, but it was inside zone, but it was all from different formations, different motions, different window dressings. And that call sheet just reminded me, and I'm sure it does a read or the people that help him during game day that say, all right, you know, this time we want to run inside zone, but we're going to run it with motion. We're going to run it with, you know, a trade in the tight end. But it's going to be, the, you know, for us, it's the same old stuff, but just from a different look. And to me, that's what the big call sheet does. It enables you to look at it and say, you know, let's run it this way this time. We want to run inside zone. We want to keep it going good. We're just going to give it a different look. Right, right. Hey, talk to me a little bit about scripting because that's another big thing that that coaches like to do. Sometimes some coaches will script up to the first twenty plays of the game, and and then they have a separate script for the for the second half. Other coaches not so much. Uh, are you a big scripter? Do you do you believe in scripting? And and if you and if you do, how much do you follow it? When you first, you know, when I first got into calling plays back in the uh, mid nineties. Uh, that was the Bill Walsh script plays, script so many plays. And when I first became a head coach, you know, I remember me and Will Walker, who was our offense coordinator, would sit down and we'd say, you know, we're going to script uh, so many plays. And, you know, it worked then it worked for us. And it was, it was neat too. Cause I remember one time it was second and two and on the script, it was, on, we were second and two versus Oakbrook high school and uh, on their, on their 18 yard line. And on the script was screen. And we ran it. We'd never run screen on second and two. And we scored. And I just remember thinking, well, that's because of the script. 
over the years, I, I think I've gone away from the script. More what I do is script openers. Uh, a few years ago, I heard a podcast, one of those coaching coordinator podcasts, and it was an analytics guy. And at that time, I was really doing a deep dive in analytics and trying to find, like one of the things I found out with play calling when I went back and looked over it, two things really jumped out at me. One, the new stuff you put in during the week never works. And if it does work, it's almost fool's gold. And you spend an inordinate amount of time practicing something that's probably not going to work. So I learned that from watch going a deep dive of it. And too often we kept calling the same play that wasn't working. And so just doing the math and said, like, if we can eliminate the bad play calls, we're going to be much better offensively. And um, so I would, but I found out on that podcast that, the statistic was, I can't remember it offhand. It was something like if you got a first down on your first, you know, on the, on the first possession of a game, 60% of the time you scored. So if you, you got a first down that first, you know, when you got the ball, you had a 60% chance to score. So openers became a big thing. So over the years, the last several years, I tended to script just the openers plays. I wanted to run on first down. Now what I've done though, is and one of the things I like it about like over the years of high school they've started having a table up top, you know, like in college you have a nice booth. And so, so you had tables so you could write during the game. And what I started doing over the years, I found the more success I had was when I would script individual series. After the first couple series, I'd write down plays I wanted to run. You know, physically wrote them down. Didn't pull it off the call sheet. I wrote it down, and I would go back and I would look at my call sheet or the sheet with me. I was like, those sort of things ended up being pretty good for us. So yeah. plays that I scripted during the course of the game more so than plays I scripted saying, hey, we're going to run these first 10 plays. You know, oftentimes I had trouble even deciding what the first play of the game should be. You know, it's like, all right, let me run something so the offensive line gets off the ball. That was an old John, John Madden thing, you know, just to go out there and hit people. I was an offensive lineman, and you get the nerves out of your system. And you wanted something that was good versus anything. And then yeah. you'd go from there, or you'd want to see how they're going to line up to something. Yeah, that's why you see so much inside zone because you don't know exactly what the defense is going to line up in. And inside zone is useful against just about anything. So that's a good safe opener. Yeah. So let me let me ask you this, right? So for for listeners out here, Paul Paul's a creative guy, and, and he's a guy who who takes sometimes a different approach than a lot of a lot of coaches do. Uh, Paul likes the arts. Paul likes to read. Uh, he's a, he's very well rounded. He, he's He's talked to our players uh, about the musical Hamilton and, and the theme of, of taking your shot when he, when he wanted to introduce an up tempo to our offense, when we wanted to really go fast and, and play and play on the ball. He started to talk to talk to him about the Ramones, the band, the Ramones, because uh, of how they kind of revolutionized punk music with their fast tempo. And um, so so the approach that Paul takes is, is cerebral. And I think that, it, that he's a good one to answer this question. Um, you know, I've, I've heard play calling described as both an art and a science. And in many ways, you can make an argument that it's both. Where, where do you stand on that? Do you see play calling, not necessarily what's on the call sheet, but but the way that you call a game? Is that is that more of an art or a science? You know, it's a, I thought that was a really interesting question, Kev. Um, it's it's um, I, I don't want to take the safe, safe answer and say it's both. I would say that like game planning is an art. I don't know if play con is more you're reading sheet plays off a sheet. You've already prepared for it. There's not too much in my experience, like extemporaneous, like, Oh, we're going to do this in a situation. You'll remember when we played um, St. Joe's in 2020 
And we got down, and it was like third and five from the five, the St. Joe's five-yard line. And we had uh, what we call Frankie, a sprint-out pass in as a two-point play. And we practiced it all, you know, for several weeks. Every day when we did red zone, we always finished up with Frankie. And I remember Frank Lasasso said, hey, how about Frankie here? And it was like, yeah, you know, is that like some kind of artful card? No, it was something that we had practiced all the time. I thought like the design and the way we prepared – that's more of the art. As far as like the game con, I think that you're just, you know, you're really just selecting something off a menu that you've already prepared. There's none of that sort of just reaching out of thin air and just going to like one time, I'll give you an example, right? We were coaching at uh, Rowan, right? And we're playing Wesley one year in Wesley's like number four in the country. And um, it started in five from our own like 26 yard line. Right. And the offense coordinator says, what do you want to run? I said, let's run snag here. And I'm thinking we're going to hit the snag route, you know, for a first down. And, you know, it'll be first and 10 and we'll be able to keep moving. Well, we hit the corner route for 74 yards and end up beating the number four team in the country. So that looks like some kind of like, you know, moment of pure genius. But it really isn't. It was just it really was more due to what we had practiced during the week. We had worked our corner routes with the quarterbacks and wideouts. And we worked on our angle, and one of their safeties was too far in the, inside the hash, and our quarterback recognized it. And on third and five, instead of throwing the snag, which I hoped he would, because of what we had done in practice, because of his own intelligence and recognizing the situation, hits it for a 74-yard touchdown, and we end up winning the game. So right. I don't know if that's you know uh, the answer to your question, but I, I think it's game planning is an art. I think play calling is more of a science. Hmm. You know, it's it's a it's a combination too of of preparation and and then sort of feel. Uh, I remember when when we were playing Mainland in the playoffs. Our big this is our big rival, and we're playing our big rival in the playoffs back in 2019. And uh, we're in the fourth quarter. We're winning by a touchdown, and and we, we we're driving. And if we can put one in here, we're gonna we're gonna probably win the game. And we get into an empty set. And uh, and Mainland walks their two inside backers out to either edge and brings them off the edge. And that's something that we had prepared for because we'd played them the previous week and they had done that to us the previous week and just murdered us with it. Yeah. I think they wound up sacked with seven sacks and we just weren't we didn't have an answer for it. And but we we got lucky and drew them in the playoffs the next week and and we were prepared then. And sure enough, they they walked those backers out to the edge and Paul calls inside zone quarterback run. So, so now we're in an empty set, the quarterback's there by himself and we block inside zone and there's literally nobody up there at the linebacker level and the quarterback finds a seam and he goes 30 yards for a touchdown and we win the game. There's just this combination of having a feel for, for the right thing at the, in the right moment. And that often meets the preparation you've done with all the film study. And it was a happy action. I remember to play very well. And when we ran inside zone, we'd bring the H back across from empty to block the edge kid. Well, the signal went wrong and they were in cover zero. So instead of the H back bringing safety over with him and uh, having an extra defender there, the H back didn't get the signal. We didn't block the edge kid who came too far upfield. Joe, our quarterback, kept it really tight. And we ended up running inside an unblocked player and not having the safety to worry about. So what looks like on the surface is like this beautiful play design and play call. There's some happy accidents that happen in that too. It's funny. I do a lot of film breakdowns for uh, the Steel Curtain Network, and I'll be doing them here for fans first. Uh, and and you do see some of that on film. You do see times where 
uh, you're looking at the film and you're rewinding it and you're like, why did, why did that happen? Why did the tackle do that? What are they trying to do there? And eventually you, you realize, oh, they screwed up. They screwed up yeah. and, and it worked. It, yeah. just, it just so happened. I mean, it's, if everything transpired on a football field the way it looks like on a whiteboard, we'd all be geniuses. But it doesn't. It doesn't go like that. It's fluid and sometimes it works in your favor and sometimes it doesn't. I think fluid's the key word. The game itself is fluid. And I think, you know, we talk about like art and science, that we want to make sure that the game itself is fluid and that they don't get bogged down and they're able to just play the game. Like we always talk about at Ocean City, we used to talk about, you know, work during the week and then you play on Friday nights. Don't forget you're playing. And it's got to be fluid and it's got to be thoughtless, if that makes any sense, you know. Right. And and like I said, there's happy accidents that you look like a genius and, it, you know, it was accidental, you know. It was the only time we ran it like that all year, and we got a 40-yard touchdown to win a playoff game. <laughs> Cal, we're running out of time. I appreciate I appreciate you taking some time. Paul's, Paul's an Eagles fan uh, for, for everybody out there. Uh, I'm going to ask you a final question. I hope it's not a painful one for you, but, uh, you know, you're recovering from that, that big Super Bowl loss with the Eagles. How, how do you like their offseason so far, what they've done? There's been a lot of movement in and out in and out of Philadelphia. Are you, are you happy with what's going on yeah. with the Eagles? It's just a really different offseason for them because last year they had a, a rookie quarterback contract, and so they had so much money to spend. And so they could spend all that money on different people. This year they don't. You know, they got to lock up Jalen Hurts. And so you understand that going in, we're not going to be able to sign so many free agents because, you know, we got to pay Jalen Hurts, and I want Jalen Hurts paid. So as long as Jalen Hurts is getting paid – and the quarterbacks are on their way. And I got trust in the Eagles. I like Sirianni. I like who they hired as the offensive coordinator. I, I like where they're going forward as far as the Eagles. And you know how it is in the NFL. You're seeing it with the Steelers now. They got Pickett. He's going to be a quarterback for them. You got a quarterback, you got a chance. You know, and you, you got, got a quarterback, quarterback got like Jalen Hurts, you got a chance. I think Jalen Hurts is a special, special dude. It is a quarterback league. That's actually a perfect segue to the end here because next week on the call sheet, we are going to focus on – quarterbacks we're going to talk about first and foremost uh, if you are one of the top quarterbacks at the top of the draft and you got these three real quarterback needy teams at the top right Carolina Houston Indianapolis what's the best situation for one of those quarterbacks to land in we're going to look at that next week and then we're going to talk about Lamar Jackson and, and, and his situation in the call sheet segment when we get into the X's and O's what makes Lamar Jackson unique from an X and O standpoint, but also what makes it difficult trying to bring on Lamar Jackson uh, if you're another team? How might you have to remake your team and your offense in order to, to accommodate his special skill set? So that'll be next week's show. Uh, Paul, man, appreciate all your time. And uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. You're one of the most knowledgeable football guys I know. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate it, Kev. It's a lot of fun. Good talking to you, brother. Absolutely. All right, we're out of time. Thanks thanks to everybody who listened this week, and we'll catch you again next week uh, on the call sheet here on Fans First Sports Network. Good night, everybody.